Hi, I'm Sean. And I'm Thomas. And this is the Sean and Thomas Show. I'm Sean, the co-founder of the Chicago-based software development agency DevScale, and welcome to the Sean and Thomas Show. This is episode number nine of Scale Talk, a series where Thomas and I talk with successful Chicago-based founders, CEOs, and CTOs that have scaled up their businesses and tech teams. The hope is for us to learn something from them that we can all apply to our own lives and businesses. We've been looking forward to today's show for a really long time. Our guest today is Jason Vandeboom, the CEO and founder of ActiveCampaign. Now, if you don't know ActiveCampaign, they are a marketing automation company and software for small businesses, and they have an absolutely incredible story. Right now, there are around 60,000 customers worldwide doing around 60 million plus a year in revenue and have more than 350 employees. Jason famously bootstrapped the company for almost 15 years, and then a few years ago raised about $20 million. We get into a really good discussion about why he raised that money and the decisions that went behind that, so it was really interesting getting that perspective. This was an awesome call for Tom and I, so I hope you get some value out of this. Let's jump in the call. Uh, well, Jason, thanks for being on the show. Um, you and Active Campaign, you're one of the best bootstrapping stories we've got in Chicago. So Thomas and I are absolutely pumped to have you on the show. Um, so really appreciate your time here. Yeah, not looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. Before we dive too deep into Active Campaign, can we go back to maybe before you even had the idea for Active Campaign and right when you were starting to get into technology and software development? How did that all happen in your life? more as like it's going way back to like when I was basically uh, like 12 or 13 years old. Uh, always wanted to like create things, right? So even before that, I was trying to like build things uh, out of literal wood and stuff like that. And my parents, uh, were like I was fortunate enough for them to be able to buy a computer, crappy computer, but I just try to figure <laughs> out like instead of just even playing games and whatnot, I was just like figuring out like what can I do? Like can I build something? Um, and then I've always just been fascinated between that and like, how do you build something to create value? So I did mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of random things from like, uh, more on the creative side, like writing for like, if you're, if you're called like sweet 101, stuff like that. Okay. Um, but under my dad's name, cause he had to be like 18 for it. <laughs> um, and then I would find these random consulting projects. Um, so I, I did some things for, uh, like web design projects and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. and that's what I just forced myself to learn it as I would. Uh, find cool. opportunities. As a 12-year-old, how did you find consulting projects? I don't think I knew what that word was at 12. Well, so I didn't think about it as consulting, like <laughs> like, like the, the terminology. Um, so I actually started building some sites myself. Um, and, and so some of the sites involved like uh, uh, trying to create some like interactive community side of things. And that led to talking to other people as I was trying to figure it out. And that led to just some rant, like purely random things where I was... Uh, corporate office park in Boston, like <laughs> same site I designed back in the day is still online for better no. or for worse. Yeah. But it's like, uh, you know, it's just so, and from those, uh, I was always just obsessed. Like I didn't care about money mm-hmm. necessarily. Cause that wasn't uh, like, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't have to pay rent at the time. So it was just like, how do I, how do I just make, uh, someone find value and make someone happy with the work I produce when you do that things just sort of I mean, that's that organic, that's uh, people talking about it. 
and, and you'll find additional opportunities. Did you formally take computer science classes or are you were you 100% self-taught? No. So I uh, pretty much 100% self-taught. Like uh, cool. my high school had a couple like, like very, very basic uh, programming classes, but I actually uh, got my high school to let me out half days because I wasn't really into that. Um, and I wanted to, uh, yeah, it was, it was really cool. Um, I wanted to uh, work at a, in, in something where I, I could learn more about what I was interested in. So I found a local internet service provider, um, basically peer pressured them into allowing me to work there so that the high school would let me out. And uh, from there, I learned a little bit more and just kind of was able to focus a little bit more on it. And then after that, I actually decided and how I ended up in Chicago was I wanted to go to fine art school. That creative and that technical, that being able to build something, um, it all accumulates to essentially just product, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it, it all sort of makes sense in the end. So what was your mindset like in high school then? Because you had to have been a, at least a pretty self-aware. Because um, I know when I was in high school, I didn't—I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do, right? Like I, I took a programming class and I, I literally hated it. What was your what was your mindset? What made you make that decision of, you know, I'm going to go work at this ISP and I'm, I'm done with school for half the time? I don't, I don't know if it was that crystal clear. I was always just trying to find something. I've always not been able to just relax. That sounds bad saying that out loud, but like I've never <laughs> been able to just like sit still and not necessarily in a bad way. It's just like a, I, I want to constantly learn or constantly push on, on creation, creation of things where it sort of draws from. Um, so what that could have taken a bunch of different paths and I'd probably be happy. Mm -hmm. um, it just so happened that those are the opportunities uh, that were available. When, when you started down that path, who, who kind of taught you or who inspired you to always want to try to build something to create value? No, it's a great question. Uh, so growing up, like my parents always had some small business of some form. Uh, so my dad had a full-time job and went up, but like they were always doing something. And then there was a variety of different businesses and things like that. So having that understanding of like watching them work on creating these, on, on interacting with customers, on like that was just sort of present and top of mind at all times. And I really liked that idea. Like I would help them. Like I would, I would go to like craft fairs where my mom would like be selling art and design. I think that sort of thought, that sort of work ethic and whatnot, that's what just was ingrained into me. That's cool. So what did you go to art school for then? What was the the focus? That's a, yeah, so it was a fine arts degree with a focus on more interactive design. I don't know what that meant at the time necessarily. <laughs> um, I knew I was interested in some interactive elements. I knew I was interested in uh, a lot of uh, more in the web design category. If I talk about like passion, like in, in terms of typography and illustration, that's where I'm actually, I'm not good, but I love it. You know, I, I went into that um, knowing I just kind of had an interest in design and the fine arts. I also was coming from a very small town in Wisconsin, which was like an amazing place to grow up. I also wanted to experience a bigger city. So in part of my pursuit, I was looking, you know, in markets where I could do that. Um, obviously mm -hmm. Chicago being within reach of Wisconsin. So, but as I was doing that, I needed to, luckily I, I had very supportive parents in the way of, they were helping me with a lot of things, but I still had to find a way to pay for art school, you know, survive and all that. Uh, and yeah. that's part of the reason why, you know, I started Active Campaign. It wasn't to take on some, some market or like transform the tech ecosystem or like any like grand idea. Like a lot of people yeah. always try to 
and they is, is is their point from the beginning. It was just like, you just wanted to pay bills. Yeah, you know, I wanted to pay bills. I wanted to have a little extra money for some food and whatnot, like you know. Um, and and I also, while I was doing some consulting, I I, I saw that opportunity in the way of I, I found a lot of similarities of what I was doing, um, and thought you know maybe we can kind of you know package that up and wrap it up into uh, something that's more repeatable where I can just keep focusing because a lot of what I found in the past, like if I can really focus on one thing and try to, I'll never find perfection, but just keep working on iterating on that thing. Um, that's what just personally gives me like a lot of uh, uh, joy in that process. How long did it take you to finally realize that this was like a process that was repeating itself enough to warrant that maybe there's something here? Uh, you know, there was no like actual crystal clear moment, I guess I'd say it was some could have thought that I could have came up with that conclusion years before it was more or less out of not wanting to continue to do the same thing and, and just eventually getting like kind of into that lazy state of like, why? And then it was, it was really just throughout, like before I even had it ready to sell, um, I just put it up on a directory online and it's like for $35, you buy you know, active campaign, the contact manager, and then someone bought it. And it's like, okay, cool. I'll figure out how to deliver that to them now. But do that with like, like extreme sensitivity in the way of, despite it being $35, like at the beginning, I would spend four, five hours sometimes helping them install it and things like that. So no thought of financial return and no thought about scalability of what I'm doing at the time which actually translates into what we do all the time today even. Like yep. I love absolutely unscalable things. I love saying things out loud and everyone else being like, that is just a terrible idea and that will not work. <laughs> but it'll provide some value now to the point of uh, knowing where we take things and having a better perspective on things going forward. Mm -hmm. So to paint a little bit better of a picture, so in you're in art school, you're consulting, what type of work are you doing with these consulting jobs on the side that made you realize that this, this was a need? It always started with web design, uh, typically, and then it would lead into like they wanted some customizable parts of their website, which was pretty much solved. Like even back then, you know, they're not solved, but like that didn't cause a lot of repeat work for me because I would use a CMS or something like that. Um, and then they'd get into like, I want to like, okay, now I have the site, it's a little interactive, we're getting people engaged with us, I want to contact them. I want to be able to like, actually email back and forth with them in a volume that's more than just one to one. At the time, there were a couple like on prem players. I mean, there were some things popping up in SaaS, but um, a lot of it was really expensive. So I was working with mostly small businesses, they couldn't do that. So I put together like little things. And that's what led to kind of the realization of, you know, there's a bunch of different ways I could take that, whether it be contact management or whether it be a bunch of other areas of the customer experience. Mm -hmm. We actually did exactly that. Like we built out, like it may have started with contact management, but every time we needed something as a small business, when we needed a help desk, we didn't go into the market and, and buy one or like we built it. And when we needed live chat, what do we do? We built it. Like that's not um what i would suggest to do in any like uh common world but it allowed us to truly understand like the different pieces of a customer experience like how do we tailor it for us and design it for us and then it turned out that it actually provided a lot of value to the other small businesses we were working with and ultimately that whole journey kind of taught us that the actual tools 
like the help us, the live chat, like they're all like they're all, they all provide value, but like where we kept finding friction and whatnot was with how do you unify that customer experience between them all, right? Yeah, and that's what sort of led us into making some some changes, focusing in essentially just that, focusing on the customer experience, and which is kind of elements of marketing automation uh, and sort of stitching together different tools. Got it. So when you said on-prem software. For those of us, we're only like, I think, five years younger than you, six years younger than you. I, I think it means on-premise. And so that means these small businesses had to have their own servers. Yes. So imagine okay. imagine creating software. <laughs> this is this is a fun time. Imagine creating software <laughs> that has to be deployed on thousands of different environments in a world where AWS and whatnot is not going to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just going to random early stage shared hosting providers with all unique mm-hmm. environments. And in a world where MySQL at the beginning wasn't even all that accessible to small businesses. We had a flat version, flat file version of the product. It's a, I still have, uh, still have that. We're trying to get it. <laughs> we wouldn't even know what to do with that. <laughs> Not suggested by any means. Before um, we ask like more questions about, you know, your first couple of customers and everything like that. Tell us, give us the active campaign pitch. Uh, so active campaign just helps you improve your customer experience. That's the high level pitch of, of mm-hmm. what we would do for a business. Now we do that for basically every vertical possible. Over half of our business is international. Um, so the only way can, we can actually do that is by providing suggestions and ideas. Meaning mm-hmm. think of it as you log in, uh, you can create business processes uh, to help with your marketing efforts, help with your sales efforts, uh, help with all these different areas of your customer experience to improve it. And we're there helping you both programmatically with suggestions, but also with like, we're actually there to help you. Small business first, like you can start at $9, but like we have, you, you at $9, you can sign up for a strategy session with our customer success team and we'll guide you through like best practices, work on ideas and things like that. That goes back to the, that sounds unscalable. We found that it actually is truly like, it's a growth engine uh, because if you actually care to that level, it creates this organic, growth that you can't buy and probably reduces churn significantly yeah yeah which is another reason why most you know companies like ours would the the, the classic move and in, in software service industry would be to move up market and i i just have a a strong problem with that because it's i i see it as abandoning the customers that brought you to the point where you are and then the small business market like that is just such a uh, powerful piece even if you thought about it only in selfish reasons in terms of like addressable market and whatnot. Like that's an amazing place to operate if you mm-hmm. can get uh, retention and everything to actually be yep. a sustainable manager. Did, are you in cahoots with Jason Fried then? Or uh, did, <laughs> did you guys come up with that ideology kind of? No, in, I think like, um, actually like, like I respect a lot of what he says about that and whatnot. It, like mm-hmm. I wouldn't say in cahoots by any means. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. Just having the same pitch almost. It's so cool that you're focusing on small business versus like moving up. It's just wild how people don't seem to care and they care for their own reasons of like trying to just build the business and whatnot. But um, it's a solvable thing. And the other thing I'd say that I, I absolutely agree 100% um, sort of with the thought process uh, that him and others have, it would be just like small businesses don't get respect like they should in my mind. So that goes back to like, that's why I have such a problem with like mm-hmm. abandoning uh, your early customers 
because they're such like one they're amazing businesses we should talk about more they're just not a you know they don't always get the spotlight in the news or anything and they're sustainable like like nobody pays attention to that part all the time and it's just like you know chasing stories about funding and things like that so like we're yeah. in this unique position where we are growing very rapidly but still like those sustainable like practices and more so like how can we help help those business owners and help them with their own customer experience help them with their their brand get those stories out there more because that's what's going to ultimately help us all mm -hmm. what does your typical customer look like today um because i know you have like 60 plus thousand customers is there a typical profile that that you guys have it's it's a little all over the place i'd say very very small business for focus from the solo entrepreneur from account basis, you're probably in that like one to 10, one to 20 range. We find okay. our sweet spot more in terms of maturity of the company. That's a little harder to articulate, but basically we think of small business as that could be um, a true small business, like a sole entrepreneur, or a team of five, or it could be a larger company where marketing and sales is like five people. Uh, so the maturity of that is kind of where our sweet spot from a platform standpoint falls into play. But then like what we'll have is we'll have mid-market come down and buy from us. We just go to great lengths to not allow us, even if it's like attractive or even if people on the outside are like, hey, go up market or something to do that. And, and there's, you know, like we don't allow any customer more than a quarter percent of our revenue. And that's just like, we haven't even gotten close to that. And if anyone internally wants to like say like, oh, but I want to get this really big contract, just sell more small businesses, help more small businesses, <laughs> and you will get there eventually because yeah. that quarter percent will be a big number. Man, those big those big offers are really sexy though. They're like, you see that number and you're like, man, that, that could be a big contract. How do you how do you deal with that? You just say you say no. Like <laughs> um, and it's not popular, but no, it, someone has to say no. Like and and maybe it's not always like possible in all in all. Yeah. businesses and whatnot and, and like that's you know that that's its own thing but if you can do it where you don't have to kind of submit yourself to that problems because then what you're going to do uh, a large contractor is going to know a pain point they're going to know pretty precisely probably or have strong opinions on how to solve it so all of a sudden you're dictated on how you build something okay. once that happens you start going down a path that maybe you wouldn't have got down, gone down maybe is specific to that company and worse yet, like even if it sort of sounds about right, like something you would do, you're doing knowing things that are being pointed out versus trying to like shift and, and adjust like what something in your market could do. Whereas if you focus more on the small business side, you can get all these data points of like, where are these pain points and opportunities, design, add some bets in there as to like where you think the market should shift versus just like using feedback as your roadmap, which you shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. And then that's how you ultimately become a better business, a better platform, provide more value. Okay. Talk a little bit about that feedback and, and roadmap thing. It sounds like you have an opinion there. Yeah. So I think uh, a lot of time people would look at feedback as like, this is, the, this is what we should do. Or like 30 customers said, add this checkbox or add this widget. And those are good data indicators. But I don't think that should make up more than like, I don't know, more than like 50%, probably much less of what you directly do. Meaning like you should be coming up with original things and original thought as much. And it doesn't even have to be like some like miraculous thing you come up with, just like a different variation of it. Because otherwise you're just designing for the known. And the same thing happens as if you look at competitors. Like don't, like the competitors don't know what they're doing half the time either. Like, 
So if you just follow that, um, you're not creating some opportunity bigger than just kind of the knowing. You got your first customer by just putting your an ad out on a directory. So yeah, if you remember, like uh, there were just various directories for like Perl scripts and PHP scripts back in the day. But yeah, and, and so it just sort of happened. So I'd go into like Yahoo Direct, like very classical, like not growth marketing at all. Mm -hmm. um, but it, you know how you just sort of provide screenshots, descriptive text, things like that. But the more important thing over that, it's not even you'll be able to get a couple people to contact you. It's what you do then is like you just like obsess over them and like pay like an odd amount of attention to them. Mm -hmm. Like where they're like a little leery of like, mm -hmm. why are you talking to me so much about something so cheap? Um, mm -hmm. But because that's going to create that start of the organic side of things. There was some stat that we saw, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but that 95% of your customers came to you organically. Is that? Yeah, is that... through organic means. Yeah, yeah. Like from a paid style of things, like that's not um, a strong, uh, strong point of like our mm -hmm. funnel. Uh, okay. So we have we have businesses just coming in and and you know some of it is organic in the sense of search and whatnot, traffic people writing about it. A lot of it is actually like true organic, like word of mouth. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing and frustrating at the same time because it's hard to track it. It's hard to like how do you tell someone on the outside like yeah we're gonna get word of mouth like up twenty percent this quarter. Like <laughs> I do fully believe you can influence that. Um, I'm a, I'm a big believer in like, how do you create like advocacy? How do you, uh, how do you build upon people that both like you? And then also that maybe don't like you, but how do you turn them into like basic things, but yeah. actually doing it to a, to a very detailed degree and using that. Cause it's going to be so much more efficient to grow that way instead of having to buy all your business. Is there anything specifically that you're doing today to try to boost that, that word of mouth? Um, maybe it's being on podcasts. Yeah. So, I mean, just, you know, for, for so long, we were just like heads down, just building the product and not like telling anyone about it, which which works to an extent if it provides value, people start talking about it. Uh, um, there's a couple things. One, like at the customer level, like we do a lot of things that, that many others do, like in terms of NPS to see how there's, how are they feeling about the platform, CSAT, how are they interacting with customers and then also cancellations and whatnot. But taking that a step further, like if you just get a report of NPS, like, what are you going to do knowing it's like a number versus another number? That, that's, that's like, you might feel good about yourself or something or bad about yourself. Either way, it's not healthy. We take it to a granular level of where I'll read every single NPS, CSAT and churn. I'll do that throughout the day. Like it's a, it's like a all day long and it's not going to a folder and it's just going to my inbox, just like filling it up. So I have to stay on top of it. Once again, totally unscalable, like may or may not be a good thing. But like, I don't always know our NPS score offhand, but I know how our customers are feeling, right? Mm -hmm. Now taking that and trying to make it more scalable for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so we built out, like we're building out a team that basically takes these. And then if there's an experience that's good or bad, like digging into on the sampling of them, like how, why, and what could we adjust both from like process internally and or with the product. And then also looping in the customer to let them know we're doing this so they know, because otherwise you're doing all this good work and they don't know. And that in turn creates advocates, right? And it's creating like authentic advocacy. I think sometimes we think about advocacy and influencers as like this 
you know, you bring a bucket of cash and you're like, here, you're my advocate now. Um, <laughs> that's pretty short term. And like, I don't like the economics of that. So we uh, like taking that more authentic approach, like you can really tr build true authentic advocates and that can really push on the organic side of things. That's really, really cool. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the kind of almost like a golden rule approach to doing business with people and like always being honest and not trying to do things for the short term, but thinking about like the long term. Because if you have that laid out, then you have you have a lot of ground like laid out in front of you and like that safety net too. Yeah. And I think there's like just some like, and, it, and it's nothing like crazy, but there's like simple things people do all the time, like price changes on existing customers. Mm -hmm. Like it, it seems so like everyone knows it's a bad thing to do, but like, what do so many companies do? It's like, yeah, that's attractive. That revenue that we're going to get, let's, let's turn this army of people that may like us into maybe not, you know, like, <laughs> That should be good for the organic side. Um, so yeah, it's uh, but balancing that and finding ways, how do you actually uh, build revenue mm -hmm. so that you can sustain yourself? Because um, I think that's a lot of the times the pressure point that causes people to do uh, some things that are, are are not as great. Speaking of price changes, Active Campaign had a switch in business model like over the years. So talk to us a little bit about that, like why you stopped selling scripts on a directory and then <laughs> switched to a SaaS. <laughs> well, and, and so the thing is like that first decade of selling on-prem software on directories and whatnot, it got a little more advanced by the, than that by the 10th year. Uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> um, like I look back at that and that was some of the most fun I've had in mm -hmm. the journey. Like that was, it was a team of eight people. Um, mm -hmm. We did so much um, and it was a lot of fun. Now there were two problems with it though. One, the, the, the customer experience was was difficult. They had to download something, install it, right? The aspect of revenue and whatnot for us was very unpredictable as well, meaning it was license-based and it was like, you know, one month would be good. I'll never be happy on a holiday. Um, you know, things like that because it would just fluctuate all over the place. And you can do all you want to that sort of model, um, but it's going to be a little lumpy. We actually, near the end of the 10 years, we, we were trying to experiment before it was really popular with like the monthly licenses for on-prem software. And the reasoning wasn't to try to get more revenue. We were trying to make it cheaper for small businesses to get started. Uh, the product by then grew to, I think it was like 500 some dollars a license starting price. And that was just a little too much for some. So we brought it down to, I think it was like $80 and you pay monthly. That was our first taste of like reoccurring revenue and SaaS and like the sustainability of that. Didn't remove our customer pain, but it removed some of our pain for the users that opted into that. So with all that being said, that's what sort of led to this decision. Let's focus in on one thing. Uh, let's make that marketing automation. Let's focus on SaaS. But it took forever to get there. So another thing a lot of businesses would do, and, and this, is, this is why I think it's great not to have funding in a lot of cases. Ultimately, we did take funding later on. But during this whole stage, we were just like, having to pay for everything ourselves. And it forced us to care about our customers, right? Like I, 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 would, I would love to think, and I, I truly believe we would have regardless, but if there was an outside pressure and they're like, oh, don't worry about all that on-premise revenue, just cut that off on this day and let's do SaaS. Like, no, it took two or three years of us slowly winding down the one side 
and bringing up the SaaS from $9 a month, trying to make that into a sum that can pay for people's salaries and office stuff like that. Yeah. And even beyond that, like even, even now we'll get questions on the on-premise product and you can find like a handful of random people in this office that know what they're talking about and will answer them. So, wow. <laughs> um, and we even offered support contracts even up until like a year or so ago, which isn't like nobody would wow. like, but the thing is like, I, I didn't want to have to change our brand. I, you know, like just because like, Hey, we were kind of crappy. So like, let's rename ourselves. Uh -huh. um, and going back to like, uh -huh. you shouldn't abandon like early customers. You shouldn't cause like undue pain. What you should do, it's, it's your problem. If you make a business decision like that and you have to get them to buy into the value of re like switching into the new type of product, like a one-time payment and now start paying us monthly. Mentally, that's hard uh, for a lot of people uh, to sort of make that adjustment. So you have to prove the value of it and you have to mm -hmm. also handhold a lot. So like we helped move a lot of things at great cost, uh, like people wise in terms of just time spent to make it an easier migration path. Were you pretty nervous that people wouldn't want to pay you monthly? Because it's a, it's a total, because that was early SaaS days too, I, I'm pretty sure. Um, so even from a business owner perspective, it's, that was probably a tough decision. So we even started introducing it slightly, right? And customers are, are really intelligent. They're like, we know you're switching to this. Like, yeah. So no, I would get like full two, three page letters about why I'm like the, the, the dumbest person in the room um, on this. And the thing is like, you know, parts of it, parts of it, I, I understood like, right. Like, and, and so in those cases, like I wouldn't just like discard the letter. I would just talk to them. If you want to yell at me go for it but like let me talk a couple words too and mm -hmm. try to just highlight a little bit of it but yeah so it wasn't very like but that also caused us to delay a lot this overthinking about it even before we told anyone about it because that very thought like will people pay i don't know and, and we actually wasted a lot of time just waiting on that and then also oddly way overthinking like what if this actually works if this works on the infra side, like we're going from on-premise to like actual hosted SaaS platform. Like let's overthink everything we should have in place beforehand. And uh, some of it, you know, maybe it was helpful, but like a lot of it was just us thinking about things that didn't actually happen to end up happening. Like, so, uh, you know, finding a way to sample it, finding a way to uh, test it out a little bit before you spend too much time worrying about success is a good thing. And that's something we still battle with. You know, if you do make a mistake, it's highlighted a little more in terms of uh, count or revenue or whatnot. Nice. You mentioned that you you really liked the early days and those were the those are the fun days. Can you shed a little bit of light on what the team was like and maybe how you got your second, third, fourth and fifth customer um, and, and how the, the founding team? I'd, I'd elaborate like I'm having a lot of fun now, too, or I yeah. wouldn't be doing it. Um, <laughs> but it's just like it's usually like when people hear the story, they're like, oh, this is, this must be awesome now. Like, so, so sorry to hear you had to go through the on-premise for a decade. Like, <laughs> no, it wasn't like that. No, just because we were a smaller business does not mean it was like this like sad, awful time. But yeah, so back then it was, it, so think of just primarily engineering focused people uh, or like customer facing. So it was almost all engineers with maybe uh, one or two like customer facing more so on the like doing everything from support, like literally everything. And so we'd have engineers answer the phone and be like, hey, how can we help you, right? Like, and it was, uh, we got to know, like there was no delay in understanding pain point or opportunity. And that was fantastic. And the ability mm -hmm. to have everyone 
absolutely in sync with like, where are we? What are we trying to do? Where are the problem spots? And everyone can sort of rally behind them. Uh, the simplicity of that, the fact we would like every Friday just shut down the company for like three hours in the middle of the day to go out for lunch, like <laughs> at random restaurants, like I can't do that anymore with the whole team, like <laughs> at least not every Friday. So like, it was just this, uh, this ability to, to just like impact all different areas with very few dependencies. So like as we've grown, you know, trying to be mindful of how can we still do things doing them the right way, but trying to remove as many dependencies as possible, because otherwise it just creates this like rather uh, complicated situation where nothing can actually get delivered quickly or how any piece of the moving puzzle wants it to be. Let's talk a little bit about the decision of raising the $20 million a few years ago, because you're, you're famously bootstrapped for what, 10, 15 years, and then you raise $20 million. People raise money for a lot of different reasons. Usually it's because you have a process that marketing that works for you and you throw 20 million at it and that returns a lot of uh, customers in the other end of it. So what was it for you guys? It wasn't that. Um, <laughs> so with so much of our growth still being unorganic and whatnot. So a couple things. One, we were just seeing massive acceleration uh, in that period of time. I'm a big believer in optimal timing of all things. I thought probably, and for a variety of reasons like I can mention, but probably we were going to raise at some point. So to do it in an optimal timing where we certainly don't have to at all, we can really spend time to find the partner we like, have a true understanding that they get our business, get like what we value. The fact that they continue, uh, like our investors continue to not say, go up market or things like that, they're, they're very true to uh, what we bought into there. The other things would be, I would do a lot of things to sleep better at night. And, and so there's, there's an element of that. Like, even if you're still running a sustainable company and whatnot, it doesn't hurt to have, you know, a couple dollars, if that helps you sleep a little bit better, if you can make some bigger bets, there was an element of that, but also almost, almost more importantly, in a weird way, I wanted, even if they couldn't like, uh, tell me like go up market or they couldn't tell me what to do. Cause it was a smaller minority round. I wanted accountability of some fashion in that area. I mean, like, even if I, uh, like making someone sad with that sort of focus is enough of a driver to make me operate better, uh, as a person mm -hmm. and hopefully spread that sort of thought process throughout the team. That outside accountability, I think is sometimes hard to find. Um, you, you, you can do it to yourself a lot, your team, your customers, obviously there's a bunch of different facets, but coming from that angle, like don't raise just for accountability. There's probably a better way of doing it. Um, <laughs> But you combine all those things together, it's, it seemed like the right thing. And now looking back and, and not really having really deployed much, um, it's, it's the fact that I'm not sad about it. Um, I know it was the right decision, so I'm confident with that. That's really neat. Um, and it kind of echoes some of the feedback that Sean and I have heard from our mentors over the years of like, if you're going to raise money, raise it, almost raise it when you don't need it, because then it's on your terms and you're, you're not, you know, in a difficult spot. Yeah. And the other thing I'd say, and it doesn't work all the time, but when possible, just avoid it entirely and wait, for, wait for that time. And also <laughs> wait for, try to do what you exhaust all other options you have before that too early, too much destiny can be like starting to become someone else's uh, thing, or you become dependent on that. And then you have to get some more, you're boxed into a situation. All of a sudden, like you're, 
increasing prices on your past customers, you're moving up market, you're doing all the playbooks, mm. but as a company, maybe you're really unhappy and maybe it's actually not the right thing and not going after the biggest opportunity in the market. Mm -hmm. So how big are you guys now in terms of employees, uh, number of customers and revenue? Sure. We're around uh, 400 people. Um, awesome. Yeah. Um, in 2016, we started around 20 some people. So we've added a few folks. We opened wow. a Sydney office about six months ago or so. Cool. In the Indianapolis office, we're putting a big focus on Brazil recently. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of different things going on. And then uh, in terms of customers, uh, around 70,000 customers now. And from a, from a revenue standpoint, over 60 million in reoccurring revenue. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's that's really that. cool. One thing that you had mentioned before um, that I'm so glad I wrote down because uh, you started talking about like international locations. Oftentimes, I feel like people don't think about the international market as one. And I honestly really haven't ever thought about building a SaaS product where more than half of the customers are going to be international. Uh, and it blows my mind even more that so much of your growth has been due to organic kind of like word of mouth and et cetera. Talk to us a little bit more about that because I think that's really, really interesting. I, th I think we did some things right and then we did some things absolutely like I would change next time. When I first developed the first version of the product, it was from the get-go localized, meaning it could be translated in some way. I, I used customers. Like if a customer came and say like said like, would love it in French, I'd be like, here's a language file, like knock yourself out and yeah. like, like send it over when you're done. I'd love to share it with the community. And people did that. Now, what we did, like, so we did that very early on. And I think that's the key part. Like, think of that from the get-go, because if you're only thinking uh, English, like, it's a small portion. Like, I mean, you can get by in a lot of regions, but by having it localized, it gives you another point of differentiation from probably some of your, some of your peers in the market. What I would change, though, so I did the platform. I did not localize our sales site or our currency at all. It was almost like an Easter egg. It was like, I'm going to buy this platform. I'm like, whoa, it's actually in my language. Great. Like, um, so I didn't actually take <laughs> advantage of it. Now, it worked because it, it, you know, it helped with that organic in certain regions. Like people like the platform. It would spread from that. More recently, we're starting to localize the sales site. Actually have localized mm -hmm. sales and marketing motions uh, in, in different languages and then also localized currency. And most of that is pretty easy to do almost easier than localizing your product. You know, it seems like, you know, at least do some of it, like at least do the product. I think like what we did, cause eventually you're going to want to, and when you want to, that's going to be painful. And then that's what causes like people not to end up doing it a lot of times. So what made you decide on Brazil and Sydney for your new offices? What went into that decision? Sydney is Australia's our second largest country. Uh, in terms of market share for active campaign, amazing small business ecosystem, startup ecosystem. We also being spread out all over the place. It was a little bit of a time zone sort of move. And we have people in Chicago, that's our headquarters, but then also um, how do we cover everything else? It was also the most difficult choice because like, Hey, let's have our second office be like one we can never talk to. Um, luckily we had a couple amazing people that have been with the company for a while, like actually pack up and move over there, um, which has been insanely helpful. So that's that's on the Australia front. On Brazil, it's 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 not this like the typical first starting localization move, but that's exactly why uh, we're doing it. it. It's a little bit more difficult from a variety of different factors, uh, from the currencies, all all sorts of things. 
but similar to Sydney and Australia in general, like that small business startup ecosystem, really strong. Some of our competitors in the space have a hard time there because they have to discount pricing like crazy to even make it accessible. We can just go in there and basically just translate our pricing to like real and be like, this is amazing. Like based on our price point and being so small business first. So we saw it as like, that's a really good opportunity. It was also our number six country just organically. Wow. Uh, we've moved that up to our number five country. And like, so like we're seeing a lot of, a lot of growth there. So that's sort of our, based on that, we can then take that and replicate that sort of model in all of our other regions um, that we kind of are looking at. Out of curiosity, so cool. America, like USA, first place, Australia, second place. What's the three, four, five, six? Yeah, so you're gonna have uh, you're gonna have like Canada, parts of Europe, and then Brazil. Cool. Yeah, we we're, we're close followers of of like the SaaS community, and I don't know if you've heard of Indie Hackers. They're they're a great community. And a surprising amount of them are from Australia. And every time I see that, I'm just like, man, like there must be so much tech going on there. It's incredible. And, and it really speaks to that small business and whatnot. So like, there's just so many of them and they're so passionate. Like, so we're doing events throughout the US and internet. we're doing 200 events that are designed for small businesses this year, all over the <laughs> world. And like, we go into a market, you know, we have to like try to, you know, draw people in both customers and everything. We usually get a good attendance. We go to anywhere in Australia, it's like, we got to cap that, like, slow down people, like, we'll get a bigger venue next time. It's incredible. Wow. That's awesome. Where are you doing any events in Chicago? Yeah, we just had one yesterday, actually, in our in our building here. So we had a ton of customers and some people that are not even customers come together and, and just learn about like, how do you grow your business using, uh, using automation, trying to save you time, you know, build that better customer experience. Nice. It, what's like the name of the event or the purpose of the event? Is it just to, as a marketing? Um, marketing yeah, event? the name is Active Campaign Study Halls. The purpose is oh, really cool. to bring customers, but then also just like small business owners together. So there's two pieces. One, the strategy. It's not necessarily just like an active campaign pitch at all. It's yeah. like strategy of like how you can grow your business. But then what we find is these groups of people uh, connect, get to know each other, even if it's like a half day event and creates these little like mini ecosystems mm. for them. And that probably boosts your word of mouth like so much because all of a sudden in the, in the same room, you've got the people that are looking at the platform and then some users and then you, you let them go have a drink and then they, they, they basically pitch each other. Yeah. And the, the other thing is like a lot of these small businesses don't get this level of attention, right? Mm -hmm. They have to either fly to some big conference that's going to be like a bunch of like high level strategic talk with no actionable takeaways or something like that. So they don't have access. So they're so like they, they thrive on it which creates a, that advocacy. And then we also track everything. So even from attributed, like what we know we gain out of it, just from those people, not like their circles of influence, um, it pays back a decent chunk of it. So like the, this is another, like doing 200 events throughout the world sounds mm. actually, even if, you know, you don't even need hundreds of people in a room for it. Even if it's a smaller event, it, it actually can basically nearly pay for itself with almost just the attributed part, not to mention the influence and advocacy. So it's almost like you're largely obsessed with like quality over quantity and that helps with churn and just the overall stability of the business. Um, and then just doing things that aren't scalable because sooner or later, like you can change that to, to be scalable again. And you get insights, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. There, there was a period of time we had a freemium offering uh, back in the day um, and it didn't end up being the right decision for the company. But during that freemium offering, we offered free strategy sessions. 
like pay us zero dollars. We'll spend 45 minutes on a phone with you talking about how to improve your business. Like, uh -huh. but that led to like, what do we build next? And what's the next big opportunity? And that led to a bunch of growth for us. What's the future look like for you guys? Do you have some big plans in the pipeline here? Yeah, so it's it's more around the concept of, you know, really kind of having all, access to all that customer data so that we can influence different pieces of the customer experience and improving that. So there's a bunch of different aspects of that, but it's all about reaching more small businesses and improving their customer experience. And I'm sure all the uh, the offices in the other countries will help too. That's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> no, it will. We, we talked about team a little bit, but not too much. Uh, from 2003 to 2016, you went from yourself to, to 20. What, what, was, uh, what were your first few hires like? And when did you have your first hire? Like when, when was the business uh, larger than the directory selling? Yeah. So the first hire I'd say is like a couple wow. years in. So it was just you for quite a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then from there, it was just like one person for quite a while. I mean, like to ramp up to eight people took a really long period of time. And it was really just, uh, you know, you know, usually some sort of an engineering-ish sort of focus, but there was no formula to it or anything, right? And then, yeah, from there, it's uh, just been trying to figure out, like, how do we take all the good from that uh, and just scale that up? How's your role then changed as CEO going from maybe the the one to eight employees and then the eight to 400 employees. Cause I would imagine that's just so different. Yeah. Slightly. I, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't do much besides just talk, but what I've learned <laughs> and we're not helping with that today. <laughs> yeah. And I, I just mean, even internally talking, but like, uh, you know, it, it's interesting. So I've always really appreciated and, and I, I love and enjoy engineering challenges uh, and scaling challenges and things like that. I also really appreciate the fact that when there's an issue, there's always like a definitive like reason. Like there's mm -hmm. always something. You might it might take forever to find it, but you'll find it. Now it's more how do we do that, but with people, which uh, which is its own complex thing. Probably not for everyone, but how do you how do you build that? How do you build that level of care and like what matters um, to me and that the company stands for and whatnot, and do that while you're just bringing in tons of people. That is a, I almost think of that as like, it's, it's not all that different than a challenge I'd encountered back in engineering days, but, but very, like, it's far more, you might not always come to some specific conclusion. That's just been a fascinating thing. So it, it's, it still piques my uh, sort of curiosity and drive in that regard. So I, I, I still fully enjoy it, but the actual day to day of things could not be more different. Yeah. What's, what's your biggest challenge then today? What, what do you, you struggle with most or what's your biggest need? People. Um, people. Yeah. And I don't mean that I struggle with people. Like that's my, uh, I hate everybody. They just don't, they just don't understand. No, um, no, it's uh, finding the right people. So like, even though we've grown how we have, like we could use so many more people. Mm -hmm. There's certain things that can be solved without, you know, bringing more people in, but um, there's so many things we want to focus in on. There's like so many wonderful ideas. So it's it's on that on that people's. How do you do that responsibly? How do you do that where it's not just like growing and count, but you start slipping what matters? Like despite the growth and whatnot, like you know we did a survey like a while back, and we asked like what is the value, and we never had them written down. And humble and humility were the top two, which is just weird and, and fast growth. It's not always. 100% accurate to try to keep, keep any non-humbleness out of the company. Mm -hmm. um, 
but like how do you uh, you know how do you keep crafting that i think of you know a lot of people talk about building a company and building kind of team and culture as the same as building a product and like absolutely i mean it's just you're constantly you know you can feature requests you're like you know using that as a data point you're like looking at like you know like esat and stuff like like it's so it, it's wildly complex but just like a product I, I feel like as we build a team as we build a culture like it can be different than the norms and we don't have to follow what everyone else does oftentimes when people start out uh on their own business ideas or just kind of new ventures a piece of advice that we've heard um other people give others and i guess sean and i ended up this way too uh was finding a co-founder so that you don't have to do it alone why did you choose to do it alone versus find someone else to share the emotional roller coaster with good question um nobody told me that no um, no i actually don't think anyone actually told me that i probably could have read it somewhere um or just realized that's the thing i could do no there, there was no like going back to like i i, I think I think there's a lot of situations where despite what people may say afterwards like it's not as planned as it may appear right mm -hmm. it was just it was just a natural thing like if i would have been working with someone on a project would i have a co-founder quite possibly it's just you know how it handled now with that though topic like it is harder and it was harder over time I actually leaned on like some resources from the sba and stuff like that just to talk to some people at times it oh. turns out that whole community is very supportive mm -hmm. and loves to share information. Uh, so that's been helpful in, in the absence of having a, a co-founder. So Thomas mentioned the the roller coaster ride uh, that startups go through. Did you ever have any ever have any days that were just the low of the low and you thought that the business was done? Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so yeah, no, 2008 would be my 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 big one. Uh, so 2008, got married that year, hired a couple people, so went from six to eight people, like overnight, which mm -hmm. is a huge shift for for a business wow. of that size. Come back from a honeymoon and whatnot, and like make sure the financial crisis, maybe some product decisions that were slightly off, stuff like that. All of a sudden, we're not selling on-prem licenses as much as we should be. It's like, we're not making money. We need money to pay for things. Like these are basic fundamental business things, right? Mm -hmm. So that led to a chain of events of me having to figure out what to do. So stop paying myself is a good thing. Um, start living off credit cards, Matt, like just rake up a ton of debt on that. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, throw in the, throw in the uh, um, retirement funds, uh, just kind of go all in and then find, go back to some of what I knew where I could find some, some cash in terms of, I did some contract projects and stuff like that. I even did a contract project for a competitor. Oh yeah. <laughs> I designed all their email templates, coded them and everything in my uh, time at night. And it was a decent sum of money. Things like that allowed us to get through that without really impact on team. Nobody, nobody really felt the pain within the company and, and allowed us to learn from that. So like, while that, mm -hmm. th that sucked, it wasn't fun. I didn't really appreciate working for a competitor in sorts. Um, <laughs> that like without that like I don't, I don't think we would stay true to a lot of the fundamental beliefs we have today mm -hmm. um when it comes to sustainable when it comes to like how do we not get to that place yeah right uh and that's why i believe so much in, and we had a sustainable business back then but with anything especially if it's not reoccurring and whatnot it, it can you know that lumpiness of uh, perpetual revenue like, that can cause situations like that to occur 
yeah. uh, which we could have avoided. And, and you know, if we would have stayed on premise, we could have found some ways to ensure that didn't happen. Yeah. But those those situations are like they're, they're great. I mean, like that's that's what creates who we are. I think to a great degree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's crazy. You'd work for a competitor. Where do you fall on the the remote work versus in office work spectrum? Yeah, yeah. No, great. Uh, personally and as a and as a company. Yeah. So. Uh, Personally, I don't think it matters a ton. Now, what does matter is that the company is, in my mind, I think a company has to pick to a certain degree, meaning works best when it's it's a motion that that everyone is sort of working with. We have you know some people working remotely. Normally, it's very much like hub based. Mm-hmm. That's why we're having offices. We wouldn't spend money on offices if we didn't have to. But just given that's what has been working for us. Whether we expand that, certainly that may change, but where I see it fall short is like if a company is like just a couple here and keep pushing here without it, you know, it, I don't know. It can lead to tricky situations. I, I, I love the, it's fascinating. I love the concept. I think also it's more about how do you, even if you have offices, how do you provide some level of ownership of, 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 of time and like what you do, right? Um, which isn't necessarily remote working, but it's an element that's very powerful. Yeah, Thomas and I are 100% remote, but we're also in the same, we work from home, um, but we're in the same apartment. We're, we've been business partners and roommates for eight years now. <laughs> I don't know if that's remote then. Like that's, uh, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, but the yeah. rest of our team yeah. is yeah, remote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's hilarious. Um, on a technology topic, sure. uh, I wanted to ask you, the email world was very different in 03. And then it kind of kept on evolving every single year. If you would do a campaign back then, it would be like very new, very cool. Everybody, like everything was different about it versus now. And there's a lot of tools out there right now that are all like pretty similar into like, they do different things, but everything's moving. Like all the ships are rising. Where do you see the future of email? Um, it's not going away. I mean, it, it, it's a it's a standard that is not owned by a single entity. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful thing. Also, I'm in no way wanting to be known as like an email marketing company or email focused mm-hmm. for the standpoint of just exactly what you said. Like, you know, you can only do so much with that mm-hmm. as a focus. Mm-hmm. Also, like, I don't believe in like the norms of what you might think about when you hear email marketing where it's just like send a bunch like all the bad stuff right yeah. it should be far less it should be when someone wants something at the time they expect it and you should be sending so few messages whether it's email another channel so whatever it may be yeah um really finding down on personalization and when and avoiding bulk but yeah so it's uh that's why I like the idea of uh, marketing automation initially and now like just the general customer experience Mm-hmm. Like that can be, you know, maybe email is a component of it, but it's also like when you bring a human into the, into the sort of whole customer experience. And I think there's a big shift to try to remove humans as much as possible, um, which I just categorically like just can't totally grasp. There's definitely benefits with like automating what you can. That's the premise of our business, but there's value an individual can provide in a personalized way. That maybe ultimately over time we can get that closer and closer to seem like a human, mm-hmm. but it's not there yet. It's not going to be soon. So we have to stop building these like, you know, just focused on like trying to get rid of humans through basic uh, uh, systems that turn everything into obvious like robotic sort of commands. Yeah, that's one reason why why we're we're trying to figure out right now how to 
streamlined some processes and sales processes for us. And um, Thomas is very against using something like Calendly because he really likes like having that that interaction. And it's important to like show that I'm not just offloading this on a robot. Like this is me doing this and trying mm-hmm. to find time. We've done some of that ourselves. So like Calendly is a great platform and mm-hmm. whatnot. Um, so we use it in certain capacities. But like, how do you provide a little bit of that? Like throw it a couple times and then maybe include a Calendly if they don't yeah. work or mm-hmm. something. It, it's it's a tough thing, but that's a good pressure to keep on a customer experience all too often like people are not uh talking like you are and and they're just like calendly great like like don't have to deal with any of that now (laughs) um and then we basically try to create all these guardrails against actually communicating with our customers and then we expect ourselves to like what provide value somehow just based on our own like wisdom we may have like i I just find like that's a uh um a disconnect so you've been through a lot in in Chicago and Chicago tech. Can you can you give us kind of your your opinion on on where you see the future of Chicago tech and maybe how you've seen it change over the last fifteen years? Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch. I you bet know, it's uh, just kind of the the companies that have grown and whatnot. The startup ecosystem is just uh, is is really fascinating in my mind. Um, the number of companies finding all these different paths and like that's the other thing like it's not like a there's there's no like one it's not like we're just like a martech city or something like it's just all over the place and like Mm -hmm. non-obvious and non-really tech related categories too Uh, but just watching all these businesses like there's so many people doing so well like that's that's the best way i could put it so it's i think it's truly an exciting time within the ecosystem yeah yeah and chicago is cool too because we don't i forget what the the stat is but we don't have one specific industry that's above X percent or something. Uh, so it, it allows for that like super diverse type of business. Yep. Yeah. Are you guys involved in uh, the tech community in any way? Are there like um, any meetup groups or anything that, that you put on or your company helps out with? We put on some things. Um, we like to host a lot of meetups. Typically there's always seems like there's an event going on here every night. Cool. Um, so really opening up the space and support two groups and not making it this thing like and we're gonna like do a sales pitch or something like in an authentic like giving you know helping give back to the community help uh help build community however we can tell us a little bit how how did you find out that you were like a product person like that you saw these things you really understood the customer and you gave kind of what the customer wanted even if the customer wasn't inherently asking for it because your product roadmap is a majority of features that you push out to them versus the ones that they ask for. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it was like a, like a realized thing per se. It's just like, I always liked building things and I always liked designing what I built. So it's just sort of the idea of a product. And, and from the get go, the very fact that you have to find customers, you have to try to get them to spend money. You're chasing the value of some form, right? And you're trying to differentiate. So it's, it's all those basic items, I think. And that's just where today, like still, like I spent a lot of time kind of in that area of the business. And that's like, that's an exciting spot to be in uh, for myself personally. So it's just an easy, it's almost like an easy area for for me to focus on. Besides talking a lot, what's your typical day-to-day look like now? Um, Yeah, so it's uh, (laughs) probably some sort of product discussion on something, really trying to balance between sort of strategic, like where are we going? 
uh, what are we doing? And I feel like that's always that like hard thing that I'm trying to get more and more time for. And then how do we actually convey that? Uh, how do we actually execute on that? Mm-hmm. And how do I work with like my team, but then like a variety of people throughout the company. So I stay close to everything to just realize like actual results towards that plan. And that sounds like such a simple thing, but like you add more and more people, it, it's, it's more complicated. Yeah. It's that whole people thing. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's also like, it's, uh, it's so confirming, like the fact that, um, there's so many intelligent people that I get to work with every day. That is just, uh, that that's an exciting thing. When you were talking about how you went from one to eight to 20 to 400 and very likely growing, um, maybe adding another zero to that headcount. What is, what's been your experience and kind of growing inefficiencies? Because as you scale the team, uh, even when you add on a second person, all of a sudden there's like overlap and inefficiencies. So what's been, you've seen it all literally. I, I think the biggest thing is you have to get over the fact that like when it's just a couple people, it was really easy and you could do whatever you could change, whatever you could do, whatever as quickly as you can. When you start to try to align, like, you know, more people, you still have to try to create a culture of that's accepting of change, accepting of like, we plan this and we're actually not going to do it now because you have to do what's best for um, where you see things going, but you want to try to like bring that down a little bit or at least message it properly. Um, and that's something that like we're not perfect on like we're not perfect on most all things probably like there's room for improvement on everything the other thing is just like um and maybe this is just me more personally but there's just been like as we've grown i don't going back to like i love everyone i get to work with i just don't know them all in the same way that i used to so from a personal struggle standpoint like around 150 people um that's kind of that number where it just becomes more difficult to like, you can know someone, you can know a name, something like that, but like to truly know them, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you're like eight people, like it's just, it's just different. Mm-hmm. And then it makes it, you know, you, when you're trying to convey like plans and why and, and give reasoning for things and whatnot, um, you don't understand the, all the different perspectives as, as intimately, right? And you probably learned, so you've, you've learned a lot by like growing so much. And then you've kind of also found out that you, there's some things you miss about being small just because small businesses are really cool. Who, who has been, and, and you didn't have a co-founder um, who's been with you along the whole way, or did you kind of add on new mentors at different stages of growth? Like who's, who's seen or who's, wh- what was the support system you had? Uh, so there's, there's some people still here today. That started a long time ago, um, not from the very beginning, because it was just myself. But from the very beginning, I guess nobody besides like a couple friends that knew of like, so not too many people I could really bounce things off of. For better or for worse, my wife has had to experience a lot since I met her. Um, as far as like outside advisors and whatnot, it's something I actually didn't tap into as much as I should have earlier on. There's always this like, I figured people wouldn't want to help or give advice. Turns out I haven't found anyone yet that where I actually like ask um, and they're not willing to offer some advice or some help. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's something I, you know, people should try to do more of earlier on. And it's just, that can be an amazing support system. Even if it's not someone that's like an actual, like full on advisor with you the whole way, but like 
even if like every time you're in like that city and they're in that city, like you just grab a coffee or something, those 30, 40 minutes like can help so much in terms of like ideas or putting your mind at ease of like, Hey, what we're going through is like actually normal. Like, like <laughs> this isn't like, this isn't just us. This isn't just our problem. Um, that can be very validating because if you don't have that co-founder, like you don't have someone to, to really, uh, not vent, but like talk about things like that to that level. Cause you know, you're not going to do that. Like you're not going to, you know, talk to your whole company and, and bring up all of your, all of your concerns and pain points. It's not their problem. Mm-hmm. Are there any other companies or, or CEOs that you really look up to that you think are, are just doing amazing things? Yeah, no, that's a good question. It, it's, I, I, I'm not a huge fan of like one of anything. Like I like a sampling of it, like, like, if, yeah. like in terms of intaking data and whatnot for myself, because I'm just so small business focused yet scale focused, you know, like, you know, Toby from Shopify or like Anthony from Squarespace or whatnot, like that, that ability to remain focused on small business, but scale like, like crazy yeah. uh, and grow in terms of impact you can have on small businesses from that vantage point. Like there's a couple examples, but like, there's cool. just so many, like, I admire and I actually learn a lot from businesses that are, you know, just solo entrepreneurs or like just a couple people, almost more than some of these like larger success stories sometimes. And quite frankly, like I can learn of like what, you know, what they're doing. And I, honestly, half the time they're sometimes doing things that are more effective than we're doing with like, you know, way more people <laughs> because they have to. <laughs> and, and you can sometimes take those learnings and, and bring them back. What are some of your favorite reads? or kind of like influential stories because it sounded like you like to read a lot. Yeah, like once again, like all over the place. Like like naming books is hard because I just go through them very quickly. Yeah. I'm also like a really fast reader, so I probably don't intake like a lot of the knowledge, but <laughs> um, there's like these little like areas that I'll, I'll grab something from, right? So, you know, whether that's actually full on books or just like a lot of blogs, a lot of like shorter content. But yeah, and it's in trying to keep it from a variety. So not just thinking like, I'm only wanting to like read about things for SaaS businesses that are scaling. Now, like I like, um, like, uh, like one of my, my, my past times that I like to read about is like crisis stories. Like, and it doesn't matter if it's manufacturing plans, software, it doesn't matter. Like, like those stories of, and there's tons of books about it, by the way. Like it's, it's kind of a sad read sometimes, but there's learnings about, how in all these different capacities of working through different things, right? So it's just a variety. I think the more you can consume in that regard, just like customer feedback and whatnot, the better. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I like podcasts like Indie Hackers where they're interviewing just, I'm, I think today was like the 86th interview on the podcast and they're totally different businesses, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then you never know which one's just going to have that that little yeah, thing. And it doesn't have to be it. a business that's similar to your own. Yeah. Yeah. If anyone listening here wants to learn more about you or Active Campaign, how do they go about doing that? Sure. It's uh, activecampaign.com for the company. And then like our customer facing teams are really easy to reach from there. Uh, and then also uh, can just reach out to Jason at activecampaign.com. Cool. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Really appreciate it. I had a lot of fun. Thank you so much. This was really, really good. Yeah. Likewise. If you enjoyed this conversation with Jason, it would mean so much to us if you hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast app you use. It really helps us understand who's listening and what you guys are enjoying. Have an awesome weekend, everybody.